Well, good evening again, saints. <clears throat> this evening, we're going to embark on a study of the end times. Eschatology is called, comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last. And so it's the study of the end. Now, like me, uh, there are some in here who are willing to admit that, don't raise your hand, that your view or understanding of the end times was either previously or currently seriously shaped by the Tim LaHaye Left Behind series of movies. I remember the church I was initially a member of when I first arrived uh, in South Florida in 1996 had a movie night, and for several of those nights, that's what we watched, the Left Behind uh, movies. We actually watched those movies while we were completing a Wednesday night church-wide uh, church Bible study on the book of Revelation. Now, you know the scenes, two people in one car, one disappears, planes crashing all over the place because the pilot is no more. Uh, the world was already in chaos, and uh, before that, even before that, the culmination of sorts. Um, then all of a sudden, there was this great peace on earth because this guy popped up out of nowhere who seemed to have all the answers to the world's problems. You know, he comes along, he ascends into the position of leader of the entire earth, uh, which is now under a one-world government. Uh, soon, however, it's revealed that he is not the Prince of Peace, but he's actually the Antichrist. Now, you remember how the rest of that stuff goes. I would say to you, if you don't, go watch it, but I really don't want you to watch it. So, but now let me tell you, back then I believed every iota of what I saw and heard as it pertained to what was being shown and taught, both in the movie and from the pulpit. Today is quite the opposite. I don't know if there's anything I would say positively about what I've just mentioned. So the question arises, what's changed with me? And let me answer that by offering three quick observations about where I was in my theological walk. And by the way, this is not a me, myself, and I discourse. I'm using myself in this case because I'm certain there's a whole bunch of folks who will resonate with what I'm saying because this is where they are right now. You are influenced by the radio station, television station, just about every single television station you turn on, just about every, all of it is, is a certain premillennial, you know, left behind type of tenor to it. You don't hardly ever see any other view, and if you do, basically you're canceled. So what changed? Well, let me answer that by offering again these three observations. <clears throat> first, the first reason Tim LaHaye got to me I didn't know the Bible. I knew, if I knew the scriptures in the sense that I'm speaking of, not just knowing Bible verses and stories and, and other stuff like that, but if I understood the meta-narrative of scripture, that the scriptures were an unfolding story of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, that the scriptures again <clears throat> told a story and it worked itself out. It's redemptive, the redemptive work of Christ working itself out throughout redemptive history and not just in some dramatic fashion in the end of time. If I had understood or knew those things, then my theology as a whole, my understanding of uh, the consummation of all things would have been more consistent and better aligned with the rest of Scripture. The second thing, I did not know history. 
Bible history, world history. So when I looked at Matthew 24, for instance, and you'll hear about that. Listen, listen this is a, a, a primer for all, for 13 weeks, okay? So when I looked at Matthew 24, for instance, under the grid I had, I couldn't grasp that some of the things that were mentioned by Matthew had already occurred in the first century. And therefore, I needed to discern what did and did not occur uh, at that point. The same goes for the book, the Old Testament book of Daniel, and some of the empires that were mentioned in that book. The lack of historical knowledge, you see, gave rise to then my third issue, a lack of balance. There's a bunch of folk walking around who are mentally imbalanced when it comes to eight, uh, end times. Uh, there needs to be an achieved balance. Uh, based on the knowledge of the two things I mentioned, knowing the Bible and knowing history, without those foundations, I was an open sepulcher for the sensationalist, <clears throat> over-the-top accounts of events which were portrayed in those movies. This was also a result of listening to teachers who were guilty of plucking verses out of context and placing them into their system of end-time beliefs. I remember, for instance, watching John Hagee, a pastor of a megachurch in Texas. I used to be a big fan of TBN. And every Sunday I'd come home from church and, and sit there and watch Hagee and Joel Osteen and everybody else you hear me talking bad about today. Hagee used to have all these end time charts that he would uh, post up behind him while he was preaching. Today I understand how that stuff produces a prone to panic, jump to believe the next big thing disposition in folk. Back then it was blood moons and all sorts of other things as signs. You know, today it's, for many, it's the coronavirus shot, quite frankly. Uh, it's the mark of the beast. Or, you know, producing your card is the mark of the beast. Now, whether it's good or not, I ain't saying, but I am just saying that there are people who are mentally imbalanced because of the view that they have of Scripture. Now, I think about John Hagee and, and the test for a true uh, prophet in Deuteronomy, and I think of all the things that he said, and today, you know, if, 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 if what applied in Deuteronomy, that is you had to die if your prophecy didn't come true. I'd have been to about 200 of his funerals already. What he was saying was just completely out of here. So now Jonathan Men, in his summary of the book, Biblical Eschatology, he does a good job of summarizing everything I've said so far. Under the heading, The Theological Importance of Eschatology, he wrote this. Eschatology helps to integrate and tie together our overall theology. The Bible, he goes on to say, tells a coherent, unfolding story from Genesis to Revelation. An important part of the biblical story is its consummation. How does everything unfold, end? Our eschatology exposes whether our theology as a whole is consistent or inconsistent with the rest of the biblical structure and story. In addition to this benefit mentioned by men, let me give you two more benefits we should glean from our study going forward. First, eschatology strengthens the teaching ministry of the church. Here's what one scholar had to say concerning that point. 2 Timothy 3:16 through 17 declares, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Uh, to not have a well-thought-out eschatology then that is consistent with the rest of our theology means that much of the Bible will remain a mystery, he says. 
However, to be able to teach and preach from all sections of the Bible, including the eschatological parts, will help produce well-grounded and well-rounded Christians. So we should anticipate then becoming more and more well-grounded in our understanding of Scripture as we systematically engage this topic every evening. And third and lastly, not exhaustively or so, as, as, as people preach, they'll give you other reasons why it's important. But the third one that you'll hear about here is sound eschatology is a source of hope and expectations. Uh, most Christians in most places in Christendom, uh, throughout Christendom, have experienced hardship and persecution. The early Christians didn't expect to avoid suffering and even saw it as a part of their sanctification. They were able to endure persecution and, and, and suffering because their eschatology told them that there was going to be a consummation of God's plan. And even the things that were evil in the world had their part in that plan. I think of Romans 8:28. All things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. If you have that view, it was their eschatology then that enabled them to avoid despair when they saw the evil that was rampant in the world around them. And boy, you can't tell me there's not a lot of evil rampant around us right now. So you see, having a sound eschatology enables us to persevere with the same hope that the early disciples had. And so with those preliminary thoughts in mind, I submit to you that over the course of 13 weeks, they won't be back-to-back because there's some breaks for other stuff, but we'll spend 13 weeks on this topic, and you should expect to hear preaching on the millennium. Now, that's a huge one right there. Um, The eschatological work of the Holy Spirit, the 70 weeks of Daniel, the man of lawlessness, the second coming, the resurrection of the body, the final judgment and hell, and the new earth. That's eight of the 13 that I just mentioned. But all these topics will be covered, hopefully in a manner that will cause us to desire to be like the Bereans who were called the noblest of men because they searched the scriptures diligently to find out if what they were hearing was so. And so with that extended introduction in hand, let's turn our focus to the assignment that I have this evening. The kingdom. What is it? When is it coming and how is it coming? Uh, For this, you know, I I put in the bulletin that I was going to do various verse, but then I looked at this and I said, you know what, this touches a lot of the things that we, that I just mentioned, that I can just speak of them in summary form and really dig down into what I have. So with that, I'm going to ask you to turn uh, to Luke chapter 17, and I'm going to read verses 20 through 37. That is Luke chapter 20, uh, Luke chapter 17, verses 20. Through 37. This is the word of the Lord. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side 
to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Again, Lord, guide us in our covering of this. Grab hold of our hearts and open our eyes. Amen. You have already heard me put three questions to be answered forward. We're here, there's three overarching headings that I'm going to address this passage under. The nature of the kingdom, the timing and sign of the kingdom, and the signs and consummation of the kingdom. So first, the nature of the kingdom. Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' question, when was the kingdom of God coming, along with the testimony of Scripture concerning the Pharisees, should lead us to understand that the Pharisees knew that God created the heavens and the earth. They understood that he was sovereign over all creation. They knew, for instance, that Psalm 45, 6 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. They knew that God was faithful and that the scepter was promised to the house of David and that a Messiah would be the one wielding it and he would come again from the line of David. They, like we do today, understood that sin had greatly impacted the created order, so much so that according to the Apostle Paul, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth, eagerly waiting to be renewed. They themselves were living under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire and were eagerly awaiting a day when they would be exalted into chief positions in the kingdom. They were so high-minded, the Pharisees were, and, and the reason they could be thinking that they would be exalted into such positions was because they didn't think that they sinned. They thought they were above. They had reached that threshold. They were God's people, and they did not need anything outside of what they had. They thought, they, and, and in line with 1 Corinthians 2.14, uh, which says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. They were so fleshly in their thinking that they missed the true testimony of Scripture. And so Jesus sets out here to set them straight. There would indeed be a time when God would make everything that would upside down right side up. Indeed, a time when there would be a, a physical reign on earth 
but first God's redemptive plan that was ordained before the foundation of the world had to take effect. That's what you see in verse 25. Yes, there will be an earthly physical reign, but not yet. If you remember, uh, Jesus causes us rather to know as much when he responds to, to Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him in reply, this is in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And by the way, lest we should attribute the Pharisees' lack of understanding to their sin and and say it was that way for every single person, let me remind you that John the Baptist, of whom Jesus said there was no greater man born of woman, asked Jesus in Matthew 11.3, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? This is John the Baptist asking this question. And you know, the way that Jesus answered John the the Baptist was not to give him a direct answer, but he he sort of did the same thing that he did uh, with Job. He said, you know what? The blind are being healed, the sick, the dead are being raised. You know, like how he said to Job. Listen to what I said. How Jesus said to Job, who caused the ocean to go this far? Who set the stars in the skies? He was telling him, listen, I'm sovereign over creation. And I have a plan, and you need to trust that plan, the way it unfolds. But it is not that way uh, at this very point. It's not unfolding that way right now. So in line with what you just heard, and in response to the Pharisees' question, Jesus says to them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, the, 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 the proper translation of that or the succinct translation of midst of you there is in you. And so there's all sorts of debates going on there in terms of how would he be speaking to the Pharisees and saying the kingdom of God is in those wretched whitewashed tombs. But the fact of the matter, it's not a physical, to, to just get to the point here, it's not a physical, spatial thing that can be scientifically quantified Jesus is saying, but it is here. It's in the midst of you. In fact, they were standing there talking to the king of it and could not recognize that fact. It's spiritual in its orientation, and it would be an act of futility for one to look for it in the natural. Jesus in John uh, 3 told Nicodemus, the Pharisee, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's like I stated in a recent sermon. These men of Israel were given the oracles of God. And had had they committed themselves to to God's program instead of their own, they would have already known what Jesus had stated in verse 25. They would have understood that there was an inaugurated step that needed to take place before the time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They would have understood that the inauguration of the kingdom would be through a suffering servant, that the realm of his kingdom would start off in the spiritual realm. And like Philip Ryken in his commentary, they would have been able to say and understand, no one sees the kingdom of God 
by outward observation. The only way is to enter, the only way to enter is by faith. So, Dean, you said there was an inauguration of this kingdom. Uh, that's a beginning. When, when was that? Uh, well, let's quickly deal with that under our second heading, the timing and sign of the kingdom. The quick answer is we've been hearing about it all throughout the Christmas season. It was when a child was born unto us. It was when a son was given. It was when a child, again, they were, they were looking for a sign, the Pharisees. They always were. Well, Isaiah 7, 14 explicitly says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's when the king came among us, that child. He grew in wisdom and stature, lived perfectly before the righteous judge of the universe, his active obedience. He endured the judge's wrath on, on our behalf, his passive obedience. And he was buried then, and on the third day, he rose again with all power in his hand, stripping the enemy of the keys to death, hell, and the grave. He was and is the king. He ascended into heaven and is sitting on the right-hand side of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. One day, as this passage goes on to say, he is coming back. And then every aspect of his rule will be evident. He is reigning now over his people. Those who, uh, who 2 Corinthians 5.17 speaks of when it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The, behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Those people, they can, through the witness of the Spirit, testify that they are born again like Jesus told Nicodemus. They can, they can and will still struggle. We can and will still hurt. But that's because we're dealing with this already. We're also dealing with this already, but not yet experienced. We're already saved, but not delivered totally from this wretched world. We are already renewed, but yearn for our heavenly bodies. There is the principle of already, but not yet. And because of that, because we know what the consummation of time will look like, we rejoice. We'll hear a lot more about that, the new body and how we deal with that when Pastor Christian preaches about the intermediate state. Uh, that will be 2 Corinthians 5. But for now, suffice it to say, there's coming a time, brothers and sisters, when everything, you know, there's a song that says that. I can't sing, so I ain't singing it. But there's a song that says everything will be all right. You know, and there's a time that's coming like that. And the reason we can endure all things is because we understand, like I said in the beginning, that there's coming a time when our Savior and his second coming, he's coming back with all power in his hand. And so for now, let's take, quickly take a look at our last uh, point, the signs of the consummation of the kingdom. At this point, verse 22, in, in verse 22, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about what will happen after his atoning work is done and before he returns. He says, and he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Now, that, that particular uh, sentence or verse is a little bit clunky 
What's actually going on there is that they are desirous because of all the ills that, that surround them, the pangs, the pains, the persecution, all the things that are around them. They are desirous. They're yearning. They're longing to see the glorious return of our Lord. Like I said, there's so much going on in our world today, so much. Um, you know, I, I think of, of people like Lot, and I think of other folks in, in Scripture, and I saw this just like the other day, and I was thinking, you know what? If you are a Christian and you don't feel like those people who you're just, I mean, just uh, disgruntled, moved in your spirit negatively by all the mess that's going around and all the things that's even people who are in great leadership in the church turning and saying things and accepting things that we clearly see Scripture does not um, accept. And, and your heart just, I mean, it's just terrible to see and endure the, some of the things that's going on. And so this is the way these individuals are. And Jesus said there's going to be a time when, and that will be the case, when you will be yearning to be, to see the glorious return of our Lord. And what will happen is people will pop up and they will say, oh, here he is and there he is. You know, all throughout history, people have been saying the Lord is going to come on this particular day. The Lord is going to come on this particular day. There he is. People have been popping up saying that they're Christ. There's a young man that I grew up with now that I see on Facebook and oh my goodness, the stuff that this guy, all of us grew up listening to Bob Marley, by the way. Love Bob Marley to death when growing up, okay? But the stuff that he has taken, I've taken Christ from Bob Marley preaching or teaching or singing from the Old Testament, and Jesus has opened my heart to Christ. This brother's gone to some dude named Angler or some mess like that, and the things that he's posting, it's like just tearing me apart inside to see that someone that I love so much grew up with, and now this person is thinking and saying and spreading the kind of mess that he's saying. And so you have these people that are popping up saying, I'm the, I'm the Christ, there's the Christ, there's the Christ. And he's saying to us, you better not look at that stuff. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. You will not have to look for Christ. His second coming is going to be so visible. It's going to be visible for all. I don't know if any of you have ever like really been close to lightning and it's just, pfft, you get scared. It's something to behold. Well, here he's saying that as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. That is the return of Christ, okay? And again, it says, but first he must suffer. We covered that. And so now the question becomes, because people are saying, look for that sign, look for that sign. What's going on? And here it says, what? Just as it was in the day of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. All right? So now you have a lot of people walking around today that uh, we call them alarmists. And they're in the church. And they're like, oh, they're falling for all this climate stuff and everything else and they're like oh basically what's happening in, in many cases is folk are falling for secularist ideologies okay and because of that they're living in fear instead of living in the peace that passes all understanding and the joy that comes from the Lord but if you look at this right here if people let me let, let me say this if people are marrying and being given in marriage and say for instance say oh man you know all this CO2 is 
all over the place. Soon we're not going to be able to breathe. Well, let me ask you a question. If there was a lack of oxygen, what person in their right mind who was living in a house would want to get married to some woman or man who would take up some of their oxygen? Right? So, so again, it, it's going to be life as usual. Yes, there's calamities. When we look at other, and when we go through this and we look at other passages, you'll see that there's earthquakes, there's all sorts of stuff. But at the same time, it's nothing where we should panic and be afraid because we know who we are and whose we are, you see. And, and, and I, I want you to see another thing right here, okay, because... Right after what I just read, when it said in verse 27, they were eating and drinking and marrying and, and being given in marriage. It goes on to say, until the day when Noah entered the ark. Until the day. I want you to see that. Remember that. And now I want you to go and look at Lot. Likewise, this is verse 28. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day. When Lot went out from Sodom. Now I want you to keep, keep, uh, catch on to what I'm saying. Both situations, as soon as the people that God was delivering were taken away, that was it. There was no time of respite. There was no seven-year period. There was nothing. It was on that day. Do you hear what I'm saying? It was on that day. And you'll hear more about that when we talk about other things like the millennium and other things like that, okay? So what, on that, when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all on that day. It wasn't no respite. It wasn't time for people to repent, all right? Now, remember Lot's wife. It goes on to say in verse 32, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Well, you know, here in United States, we are blessed beyond blessed. All of us in here have all kinds of cars, and, and some of us have boats. I ain't got no boat. If you got one, I want to borrow it, right? But the point is all of us are well-blessed, okay? And so there is this thing like the rich lung ruler when Jesus comes and says, you know what, give all you have away to the poor and sell it, where we want to hold on to the things that we have, okay, in the now. And we'll trade that that we have in the now. For that was in the future. And here's what he's saying to them. Remember Lot's wife. She turned around and looked at that which was behind her. She basically did not pick up the plow they called it and kept going. But she looked at what was behind her, the things that she had. Whoever seeks then to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever submits himself to the Lord, whoever walks in the Lord, whoever is truly regenerated, and it manifests itself in a devotion to God, that person will keep their life. And now I tell you in that night, verse 34 uh, and 35, I tell you in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. All right, so now if I'm a, a, a left behind person, I, I take it out of here. Oh, look, it's the rapture, right? One will be taken on the left. And then verse 35, there will be two women grinding. Now, let me tell you, the church that I talked about, the pastor said that this two women grinding was uh, lesbianism. It just goes to show you. Watch who you're listening to, okay? This is, not, this is a, a, a mill where they needed two people to grind the stuff that was there, okay? 
But so they say that there's, there will be two women grinding uh, together and one will be taken and the other left. So now all of you, like I said in the beginning, who like me had this mindset of, oh, look, it's the rapture. It's right here, right? Well, let me say this to you. Based on the context of everything that you've heard me saying just now, that there are those that are born again and there are those that are not, right? And then there are those um, who do not have the Spirit of God and those who do have it. Now look at what it says in verse 37. And they said to him, we're Lord. He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now he said, oh, that's a hard verse to understand, right? But what about this? The natural order, when you look at a vulture, right, you have a dead corpse. And what is natural for, to be around that dead corpse? The vulture, right? And so when you look at this uh, 37 and you understand it from that perspective, and then contextually you look at the next two, you see that instead of talking about one taken and one left in terms of a rapture and the other, you hear where one is, receives judgment and the other one goes into glory. Did you hear what I just said? One receives judgment and one goes into glory. And whether you want to say that the one that's left was left with judgment and the one that was taken was taken into glory or vice versa, the point is this does not support, the context does not support anything that says that someone will be raptured and taken up, okay? And the context does not uh, support anything that says there's going to be some uh, respite of time uh, where people will be walking on earth, where the Antichrist will come and he will be acting in peaceful ways. No, what you will see as we go through this, and quite frankly, by now it should show in or show up that I'm amil in my orientation, used to be completely pre-mill, okay? And so now I also believe that some of us are what's called partial preterists. You'll, you'll hear what that is. That's a person, again, who thinks that many of the things that happen uh, in the biblical text that happened in the first uh, century, many believe that all of it happened. That's a full preterist, okay? And so then you have our, our post-millennialists who think that, oh, we're going to make the world all better, and then the end. The bottom line, brothers and sisters, is our Lord is coming back. And when he comes back, those who don't know him are going to be in a whole fit. Anybody talking about, oh, you know what, I got time when Jesus come back, I can repent then, da, da, da. No. When the Lord comes, he is coming in his glory, but he's coming as a lion. And those who have rejected him, they're going to full, feel the full wrath that they allowed themselves to be in because they rejected the Lord and our Savior. So, brothers and sisters, let me tell you, I'm excited. I don't know about you. I'm excited to hear the other people speak about these end times issues and dig into them. I, like I talked about being Bereans, I ask that you yourselves would go and dig into the, to the, all of these different topics in, in our eschatological library, if you will, and ask all the questions that you have. Maybe we'll have, have forums um, while we're going through this particular uh, series, but let's dig into this and let's uh, again, be encouraged by the fact that our Lord is coming back and all that we deal with on this side of life, we deal with with a heart filled with joy because we know the end of all things. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
for your word. We thank you for the inauguration of your kingdom and that you, by your grace, not by our works, but by your grace, you, before the foundation of the world, wrote our names in the Lamb Book of Life. And at the right time, you died for us, your spirit regenerated us, and now you're keeping us. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us and you've revealed how the end will unfold. Uh, no man knows the day nor the hour, but we know, Lord, that in the end, you will restore all things. You will make all things right. And because you rose, we have the guarantee that we too will rise because you even now have a perfected body. We too will have a perfected body. And so we thank you for the knowledge of who you are. We thank you for the knowledge of what you've done, what you're doing, and what you will do eternally for your glory. And we pray that you would keep us steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work for as much as we know that our labor in you is not in vain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.